Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you to, to praise our God, who is our shield and defender. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. If, uh, if you haven't met me, I would I'd be pleased to greet you afterwards at the door. This morning, we continue our study in the book of Genesis, today in chapter 31. So I would invite you to, to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 31. We're going to study the, the entire chapter this morning, Genesis 31, the Exodus in Beta. But before we read from God's Word, it's appropriate for us to again pause and ask for God's blessing in our, in our hearing and the proclaiming of God's Word. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, in the, the storms of the trials of this life, we need an anchor for our souls. Lord, we need to be grounded in something sure and, and steady. So Lord, this morning, as we, we come to your word, we pray that, that you would again moor us to something that is more sure than anything else. Lord, what you promised to us and have given to us in Jesus Christ. We pray today as we continue to study the life of Jacob that we would see your work in his life and your promises to be at work in our life for our good and your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, recent and ongoing world events probably have have many of us thinking about protection and fleeing from danger. The Russian invasion of Ukraine going on its its third week now has our news feed filled with stories of, of train stations turned into bomb shelters, of of evacuation corridors being shelled, of refugees pouring into neighboring countries. It's a a stark reminder of the protection that that all of us need. It it reminds us that that sometimes there are dangers so great, the best thing to do is to, to escape. I wonder, have you thought at all about what you might be doing if, if you lived in Ukraine in these weeks? Or how our, our Christian brothers and sisters are experiencing these weeks? What, what do you think their hope for protection is this morning? And, and for us, even if war is not knocking on our door, where, where do we look for protection in the dangers that we face? What hope do we have that, that God will protect us and deliver us through them? Well, our, our text this morning, the 31st chapter of, of Genesis, continues the story of, of Jacob in Haran. And it's a, a story of his, his flight from danger. In it we see not only God's ongoing protection of his people, but, but an opportunity to recount how God has protected Jacob throughout his many years in Haran. And in the end, we see that God, through his actions in Jacob, is establishing a pattern of his deliverance, a pattern that will be repeated time and time again until it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So our, our big idea this morning, our one-sentence summary, 
of the whole passage is this. God protects his people in a pattern of deliverance that continues in Christ. God protects his people in a pattern of deliverance that continues in Christ. What is your hope for protection? How do you know that God will protect you? Because as he has done in the past, like to Jacob, he continues to do so. And still does through the ultimate and and final deliverance in Christ. God protects his people in a pattern of deliverance that continues in Christ. Normally at this point I would provide you an outline. But today we are going to mix things up a bit. We'll spend the first half of our time this morning reading the passage section by section and and pausing to explain and, and give comment. And then once we're through it all, through all 55 verses, I'm going to draw out three, three themes from the whole passage and apply them to us today. So you'll get an outline, but later, later this morning. We're going to start by reading the first 13 verses, our first of five scenes. So read with me from God's Word, Genesis 31, starting in verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I served your father with all my strength. Your, your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. The word of the Lord. Well, this, our first scene, has God, after 20 years, appearing to Jacob again and calling him to leave, to return finally to his homeland, to his his kindred. So here we come to a major turning point in the story of Jacob. To recap what we've seen so far, Jacob was, was chosen by God even before his birth to receive God's blessing. But as Jacob grew, instead of waiting and trusting God's word, Jacob had to flee home and family because he stole the blessing from his older brother. And his older brother, Esau, was planning to kill him for it. So Jacob fled Canaan, the promised land, to come to his 
his uh, mother's family here in Haran to his uncle Laban. While on the way to to Haran, at the the lowest point of his life, God met him in the wilderness and, and promised to be with him and to keep him as he went and as he came back. Well, here in Haran, Jacob has labored for for 20 years, 14 years as a a bride price for his his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and and six more as a shepherd of of Laban's flocks. Though we have heard almost nothing from God in these 20 years, we have seen his work in in Jacob's life to to lead, to overrule, to to listen and, and supply. But now in in chapter 31, at long last, we have a word from God. Look again with me at at verse 1, the the context in which this word comes. We see there first that the gossip is spreading, reaching Jacob's ear, that Laban's unnamed shepherd sons are, are saying that Jacob is taking their father's wealth. Well, frankly, it's It's true. That's how chapter 30 ended, right? That God is supplying Jacob with an abundance of flocks and that from the flocks of of Laban. The arrangement that Laban had worked out with Jacob is not working as he had planned and his sons are bitter about it. In fact, in verse 2, Laban himself no longer regards Jacob with the favor he, he once had. It's in in this context, then in in verse 3, that God speaks to Jacob and tells him there, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. After 20 years of apparent silence, God speaks to Jacob these directions, and he repeats the promise that he, he gave Jacob in the wilderness. I will be with you. God has been with him. And he will be with him. I think what we have in in verse 3 is a a concise summary of what God said to him. We'll get the fuller version of it in verses 11 through 13. But Jacob responds to this command with immediate action. He immediately calls his his wives to him into the field where his his flocks were and reports reports what he heard to them. He, he's going to try to convince them to agree that it's, it's time to, to leave. In verse 5, we see him acknowledge that he has lost their father's favor, but gives his own brief analysis of the past 20 years, that the God of my fathers, there at the end of verse 5, has been with me. You know, chapter 31 is, is filled with these backward-looking statements Jacob's own commentary on what has happened these past years in Haran. In his summary, here in verse 5, the God of my father has been with me. The evidence is clear. Despite no more mountaintop experiences, no sight of angels, despite even great hardship, God has been with him. In verse 6, we have more details about the past six years something we didn't learn in chapter 30. Well, we'll recall from last week, in in chapter 30, verse 32, Jacob agreed to stay and shepherd Laban's flocks in return for all the speckled, spotted goats and the black lambs. But here we we learn, verse 7, that Laban changed the deal 
time and time again. But as he changed the deal, God changed what was born to the flocks. Friends, God is sovereign even over DNA. All of nature made by his word bows to his will. And again, we have Jacob's analysis of these events at the end of verse 7. God did not permit him, that is Laban, to harm me. In in verse 9, Jacob's explanation of what God has been doing in these six years. God has taken away the flocks, the livestock of your father, and given them to me. We notice here how many times he interprets the events of these past years, not with natural explanations, but through God's actions. But God, in verse 5. But God, in verse 7. Thus God, in verse 9. Three times already. So in verse 10, he tells his wives that he had a dream. Uh, I understand this dream to occur after the events of, of chapter 30. And what was summarized in short in, in verse 3. First, he, he sees in this dream the patterned goats breeding. Then in verse 11, the, the angel of God speaks to him. You know, they've been there on the ladder above him wherever he was. Now, one that has been present speaks to him in this dream. The angel points out the pattern goats and says that this is because I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I think this is an indication when the dream takes place after all that Laban has done to him, changing his wages ten times. The angel announces that that he speaks on behalf of of God, the God of Bethel, reminding him of his his vow there. And in verse 13, the the command, the command that we saw in shorthand in verse 3, arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. It's it's a compelling case to convince his wives to, to leave the land of their father and join Jacob on his return to Canaan. Well, will his wives be convinced? Let's read, starting in verse 14 through 21. Genesis 14, 31, 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he acquired in Padam Aran, to, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And, J- and Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Well, here we have the sisters that were so frequently divided are now united in their assessment. There is nothing for us in our father's house. Do whatever God has told you to do. 
You know, normally the, the bride price would have been set aside in case the daughter had, was widowed or, or divorced. But here it says in verse 15 that the fruit of, of Jacob's 14 years of labor as bride price has been devoured. So there is no safety for them any longer in their father's house. In fact, the, the wealth has been transferred to Jacob himself. It belongs to him now. Well, since his wives agree on this, Jacob assembles all his wealth and family and sets off immediately back to his father Isaac in, in Canaan. But not before Rachel has some revenge. In verse 19, while Laban is away shearing his sheep, which could take many days, she steals his household gods. These would be small carved figures who represent the gods that he worshipped. The text doesn't say that the reasons why she had for, for stealing them. You know, certainly she had plenty of reason to, to be bitter, to be vindictive against her father, the father who switched her out for her sister Leah on her wedding night. Eventually these gods will be buried and forgotten. But for now, I think it's her attempt to steal the, the last possible source of blessing from her, her father, Laban. Finally, Moses says that they flee without telling Laban. Based on the, the vocabulary he uses here, it's not a good thing. Let's read our next section well, where we'll see why, what motivated Jacob to, to hide his departure and how Laban responds. Let's start reading in verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Jacob overtook, or sorry, Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have taken, oh, sorry, what I have that is yours, and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Well, there it is, at the end of what we read in verse 31, he left secretly because he was afraid Laban would take his, his daughters by force. But think of it, when has Laban ever succeeded in taking anything from Jacob? By force. He has tried again and again, but God has confounded his plans every time. Jacob has, has still much to learn of God. We see so much evidence here of, 
of the fact that Laban cannot touch Jacob, however much he tries. Back at the beginning in verse 22, Laban hears of of Jacob's departure, pursues him. This section is, is filled with military terms. Pursued, overtaken, driven away, captives of the sword. Even the word that is used here for pitch his tent, it's not the same word that's used elsewhere in in Genesis for a normal setting up of a a tent. This is more like setting up a, a military encampment. This is one army coming to overtake another army. It's foreboding language. But in verse 24, God intervenes. He warns Laban in a dream, point blank, not to exceed his authority. Do not overstep either for good, promising what you can't, or for bad. Well, when Laban finally meets Jacob, he puts it on thick. I think we can roll our eyes thinking that he'd, he'd really do this, send them away with mirth and songs, not without any protest. No, last time Jacob tried to leave, he he protested. But our passage ends with a great threat. Without knowing it, Jacob places Rachel, the wife that he he loves, under the threat of death. Whoever has stolen the gods shall not live. This could end terribly. Let's read on, picking up in verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father... The God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Well, of course, in suspense, Laban enters Rachel's tent last, only after searching Jacob's, then Leah's, then Zilpah and Bilhah's tent. But Rachel has hidden the gods. She's put them in a saddle and sat on that saddle. And she excuses herself before her Lord's presence for not rising. She's currently menstruating. This is 
lost a bit in translation, but, but a Hebrew would see this as, as humiliating to these gods. Both camels and menstruation were considered unclean. In other words, these idols she sits on are unclean too. And, and keep in mind as we read this that Jacob does not know that Rachel stole these gods. He still does not know. So he responds when Laban cannot find them, with righteous indignation. What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me and accused me of theft? So he brings out the account of his blamelessness with Laban's possessions, his his flocks that he cared for. Another backward-looking statement to fill us in on the 20 years of his labor. Starting in verse 38, he didn't eat from the flocks. He, He bore the loss of those taken by beasts himself. He was with them in the, the heat of day and the, the cold of night. Well, in it all, he, he draws his conclusion in verse 42, one of the key verses of our passage. He says there, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you, have, you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Through it all, God was on his side. God saw his affliction, knew it well, and protected him in it. In our final verses, Laban takes initiative to form a a covenant with Jacob that he would not pursue and and harm Jacob. Let's read our, our last scene starting in verse 43 through the end. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me. When, you are out of, or when we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and pillar which I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Well, here Laban realizes that the the only thing he can do now is to get Jacob to promise, to, to make a covenant and call on God as witness that he will treat Laban's daughters well. So they, they set up a pillar, much like Jacob did at Bethel, as a witness, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. And we learn also in, in verse 42 that, that it also means that they will not pass this pillar 
one to the other side to do harm to the other. So they part, not reconciled, but, but at peace. It, it's not quite clear, but it seems like the oath that Laban takes differentiates between the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, two different gods. But in contrast, in verse 53, God swears only by the fear of his father Isaac. Finally, they, they have a covenant meal, and in the morning Laban kisses his, his daughters, his grandchildren, and, and leaves. Jacob is only a few days away from Haran, but, but he is on his way safely. After 20 years, God appeared to him in a dream once more, and, and with the assurance that he would be with him, told him to go. God has been with him, and God will be with him. Well, saints, now with all this before us, I want to draw out three themes that span our whole passage for our encouragement and instruction this morning. Three themes to to study for the rest of our time. First, protect. Protect. God protects according to his promise. Second, pattern. God establishes a pattern of his deliverance. And third, pick. You must pick who you will serve. So three themes for the rest of our time this morning. Protect, pattern, and pick. First, brothers and sisters, protect. God protects according to his promise. All throughout the passage this morning, time and time again, we see that God protects Jacob according to his promise. We can add to our list from last week. Because we are kept by grace, God is present with us to lead, to overrule, listen, supply, and now protect. God is present with us to protect. Jacob has has gone through, through many dangers, toils, and snares, but our passage begins with another threat, losing favor in the sight of his, his benefactor, his, his employer, and most fearful of all, his father-in-law. You know, saints, God is sovereign even over who does or does not favor us. Of course, your actions have a lot to do with it. But, but listen to how Daniel 1.9 talks about the, the favor that Daniel had with those in authority over him in his captivity. Daniel 1.9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And God gave Daniel favor. Jacob's loss of favor with Laban in Genesis 31 Just like Daniel's gain of favor in Daniel 1 is a part of God's plan to achieve his purposes. Your job, so far as it depends on you, is to live peaceably with all. Give no one any reason not to favor you. But even when you do, it doesn't all depend on you. This happens according to God's purpose. But even without Laban's favor, it is as Jacob said in verse 7, God did not permit him to harm me. Do you hear that word, saints? Permit. God did not permit him to harm me. To permit, to give authorization, consent to do something. Laban could do nothing to Jacob without God's permission. 
It might seem like Laban had great authority over Jacob, but the ultimate and decisive authority belonged always and only to God. I think one of the best illustrations of this is is Jesus' great moment of danger in his unjust arrest in the garden. We read in in Matthew 26, after, after praying in great anguish that this suffering would pass from him. Jesus is approached by by a great crowd with with swords and clubs. And one of his disciples draws his swords to to begin the defense. But Jesus rebukes him. Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion is 6,000 soldiers. More than 12 legions would be 72,000 angels at minimum. Jesus teaches us that he knows his Father has absolute and decisive authority. It would be 72,000 angels versus a crowd with clubs. This crowd can only do what God permits And he permits this danger to come to his beloved son, Jesus, to accomplish his will. That Jesus might go to the cross to die as our sacrifice. God's authority over Laban, of course, does not mean that Jacob would experience no affliction. No, in fact, I I think the opposite. It guarantees that he would. How else would he know that God will keep him through threats if no threats come? How else would he learn to rely on God? This isn't merely theoretical. Theology in the brain, it is, it is real and near constant for Jacob. By God's permission, Jacob experienced great hardship so that he would know personally that God would protect him. He can say from personal experience that God has kept him, protected him through every danger. He says, God did not permit him to harm me. And all this, we remember, is according to God's promise. Back in Genesis 28, 15, at the beginning of his journey, God promised to be with him and to keep him wherever he went. That God would not leave him until he has done all that he promised. You might have noticed through this passage, Jacob had protection in the past. Verse 7, God did not, past tense, God did not permit him to harm him. Protection in the present. In verse 24, God warning Laban in a dream. And protection into the future. In verse 52, the covenant not to pass over to do harm. Peace secured. Past, present, and future. Well, the question for us, saints, is is can we say the same of our lives? Protection, past, present, and future. What has, has God promised us? Well, we read earlier in our service from 2 Corinthians 11 of all the hardship that, that Paul experienced in his ministry as an apostle. It's more than you might imagine one person can endure. Did God protect Paul through that? Well, according to, to Paul, Christians experience affliction too. 
He actually begins that letter, 2 Corinthians, with eight references to suffering and affliction in the first eight verses. And he gets to the purpose in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 1, 9 and 10. The purpose of suffering, he says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Christian, God is faithful to his promise, not to keep you from affliction, but to bring you through it, deliver you, and to teach you in it to rely not on yourselves, but on God. I think that's what we see has has happened in Jacob's life. How often does Jacob in this chapter reference God? Not perfectly, but increasingly. His hope is, is on God to deliver him, and that he will deliver him again. Now, saints, I I know that your life might not be like Jacob's or Paul's, but all of us experience affliction, some more, some less. Christian, do do you expect to experience danger in your life? In in suffering, are are you prone to grumble, Indicating that you think God is absent from you or is unjust toward you in the suffering? Is your affliction producing more self-reliance or reliance on God? Do your prayers in suffering reflect a hope in God to protect you? Or does your prayerlessness show, our, show that you are hoping in your own ability To protect yourself. Saints, God has not promised you freedom from affliction. He has, in fact, promised it will come, but he has promised to protect you in it and to deliver you again. So hope in him. First, God protects according to his promise. Second, our second theme, pattern. God establishes a pattern of his deliverance. This week I listened to a a prominent Southern Baptist leader and preacher teach on this this passage, and frankly when it concluded I was left in dismay. In the better part of an hour, teaching from God's word, this man did not mention Jesus Christ or even the New Testament once. It's essentially what I would call a synagogue sermon, something no Jew would object to, as true as it might be. It it reminded me of the advice of of a London preacher as he referenced the city of London. He says, from every town, village, and little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures, that is Christ Your business is, when you get to a text, to say, now what is the road to Christ? Friends, whenever you read the Old Testament, do not leave until you have found the road to Christ, even if you need to borrow a map from a friend. Let me summarize this morning's passage, and you tell me if it it reminds you of another story in the Bible. After many years of silence, in servitude to a foreign master, 
God's people are under threat because they have lost favor. They were afflicted and burdened. But God appears to them and calls them out of the land to return to the land of their fathers. As they leave, they humiliate the foreign gods and plunder their enemy. But the foreign master pursues them in military fashion. God, however, protects his people and brings them out in peace and to the promised land. Well, that's a good summary, I would say, of, of Genesis 31. But when you squint your eyes a little bit, it's also nearly exactly the outline of Exodus, chapters 1 through 15. You've been probably wondering, why do I call this sermon Exodus in, in beta? Well, here, here it is. Obviously, Genesis 31 is not the same as the Exodus, but it is the Exodus, as they say, in beta. This is a, a precursor to the Exodus from Egypt. We have to assume that as Moses wrote this account from the other side of the Exodus, he noticed this pattern and he highlights it to encourage his readers. He writes to the generation wandering in the desert after the Exodus, and they see in this that God was even then, with their forefather Jacob, preparing his people for the Exodus, showing them that God has this power. But that only brings us into the first two books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Well, friends, as God has delivered Jacob from servitude in Haran and Israel from slavery in Egypt, there is a greater exodus. All of this, this pattern, is pointing forward to the final exodus, our deliverance, not from physical servitude or slavery, but the spiritual slavery of sin. One author summarized it helpfully this way. The driving point of the narrative of Jacob's escape here in Genesis 31 is that God did it all through his multiple interventions and constant protection. God would later do exactly the same in Moses' escape from Egypt. And so it is now in the ultimate exodus in Christ. All of this, Genesis 31, is prophetic of the the glorious exodus that believers find in Christ, the ultimate Israel, who plundered the power of evil and leads us out of bondage from Satan. Dear friends, our biggest problem is not our circumstances or our suffering. It is our bondage to sin. Christ, the The captain of the ultimate exodus came to deliver us from the the slavery of our sin, a bondage that we cannot deliver ourselves from. Jesus Christ came to to die in our place, suffering the wrath that, that we deserve for our sins. Only by his death can we be freed from sin's penalty and and power. First, his his death gives us forgiveness. Our sins have earned God's righteous wrath, but Christ paid that price. For all those who trust in Christ's death, your debt is paid in full. But not only that second, but his his life gives us new life. His resurrection from the tomb means our resurrection. We have a, a new heart with God's law written on it. We are filled with his spirit so that we can walk in the newness of life. Sin no longer enslaves us. You have become part of a new humanity. A humanity being conformed to the image 
of the Son. And when we look at it, we say God did it all. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that required it necessary. And this deliverance he gives freely to all who will believe in him. You too can know this forgiveness and new life if if you acknowledge your sins against him, hating them for what they are and trusting in Christ for you. This, my friends, is the ultimate exodus, the pattern established here in Genesis 31 and time and time again in history. He is teaching us here, brothers and sisters, that God is, is faithful and powerful to accomplish salvation. You know, as, as we think of it, God does not promise that, that danger will not be fatal to you. As we think about our, our brothers and sisters of every believer in Ukraine, they, they might not survive this war. But God's promised protection is not from mere physical threats. It is from the greater threats of spiritual death. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus reminds us, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who do you fear? Will you follow Christ, the captain of our exodus, into spiritual freedom and eternal security? Protect pattern in third pick. Pick who you will serve. This passage calls us all to to make a choice. Who will you fear? I think one of the saddest themes of Genesis 31 in light of the whole story of Jacob is how we leave Laban. His role in in the book of Genesis and God's purposes are are over. Think of it. Laban was first visited by Abraham's servant in Genesis 24, a man who radiated trust in the God of Abraham, offering him praise and, and joyful obedience. Laban himself testified in in chapter 30 that he knew, he knew it was the Lord who was blessing him through Jacob. And and here in, in chapter 31, God appears to him personally in a dream and warns him not to harm Jacob. That's overwhelming evidence. He should have abandoned his homeland and joined himself and his family to Jacob and his God. And followed him to the promised land. But despite all that clear evidence, he is still devoted to his idols. Idols that need to be rescued, who can't even call out for help as they're trapped under Rachel. You might be thinking, you're not in danger of worshiping idols like Jacob, little gold gods. But but listen to how Martin Luther defines idols. He says, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Gods are not just spiritual beings. It is whatever your heart clings to and confides in. That could be yourself, or alcohol, or other people's approval, or sports, or money, or comfort even. 
Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. When suffering comes, when danger threatens, what does your heart cling to and confide in? But Jacob, here, his heart clings to and confides in the fear of Isaac. I'm sure you notice that most modern translations capitalize that. Capital F, fear, recognizing it as a name of God. Jacob, like his father Isaac, has learned to fear God, to revere him in the awe of worship. All the while Laban blind to the one true and living God. Despite all the evidence knowing by divination, appearing in a dream to him and speaking to him. Laban has no fear of this God. So it causes us to think this morning, saints, do you know the character of the God of the Bible well enough to fear him? Laban knew God was real, that he was there. He spoke with him. But do you fear him? Do you fear this God well enough to serve and obey Him even when it is costly? This passage calls us all to pick a side or or better, in the words of Jacob in verse 42, to consider whose side God is on. There are only two options. Either He is for you, on your side, or against you. As long as you are committed to your sin and your efforts to save yourselves, the holy God of the Bible is against you in justice. But with the fear of God, with repentance and faith depending on God's grace, available freely to all through Jesus Christ, He will be on your side against your sin. So, what will you pick? Will you, with Laban, ignore the clear evidence and choose the fleeting pleasures of sin that leave you empty-handed? Or will you join Jacob in humble reliance on God, saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ? The choice is yours today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you recognizing you as the fear of Isaac. Lord, the only true and living God. Lord, to whom all devotion and worship is owed. Lord, ours, not because of of our strength, but because of your protection and your deliverance. And that, through the final exodus, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we praise you for offering to us final salvation, the deliverance from the captivity and slavery of Satan and sin. Lord, that when we were in bondage, unable to save ourselves, you came and rescued us, bringing us to the promised land of eternal security in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would press this on our hearts today, that in fear of you, we would choose Lord, in obedience to you, to serve you in holy reverence for all of our days. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.